All hypnosis is self-hypnosis. Um, I don't do anything to people. I show them how to manage their own hypnotic ability. And you and I know that people believe a whole lot of things that are just flat out not true. I had a young woman came to see me. Her pain was seven out of 10 when we started. We got it down to three out of 10. She said, I can live with this. But she looked angry. And I said, what are you angry about? And she said, why in the hell are you the last doctor I got sent to instead of the first? I think um, people are afraid of it. I think they do associate it, as you mentioned, with uh, stage shows and things like that. They're afraid they'll lose control when really they're gaining control. You feel your body floating in space. And now picture in your mind's eye an imaginary screen. It could be a movie screen, TV screen, computer screen, or a piece of clear blue sky. And picture on it a pleasant scene, somewhere you enjoy being. Now, first of all, with your eyes closed and remaining in this state of concentration, please tell me how your body is feeling right now. In today's episode, I sit down with Stanford professor David Spiegel to talk about the benefits of hypnosis. I know what you're thinking. Hypnosis? Isn't that witchcraft? That's what I thought too. It turns out that hypnosis is much more than that. And there's a distinction between stage hypnosis, what you may have seen on TV or at a magic show, and clinical hypnosis. And with 40 years of clinical and research experience in psychiatry and psychotherapy, including hypnosis, 400 plus peer-reviewed papers, and 140 book chapters, Dr. Spiegel is perfectly placed to help us make that distinction. What is hypnosis? What happens to the brain during hypnosis? How hypnosis can be helpful for pain management, breaking bad habits, reducing stress, improving sleep, and more. Enjoy. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters 
often fall short in. And the optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. A time of the year where stress levels can increase, there's you know, work deadlines and there's travel and family commitments, right. all the things. Right. And I know for me personally, the the last few nights have really gotten the better of me from a stress point of view. Mm. You know, I've got a number of different projects that I'm working on. There's emails to get back to. There's research to do for episodes that I'm recording so that I can have some time off in, in January. There's relationships to tend to that I want to tend to, but maybe feel like I'm not tending to as, as well as I could. So what I've been experiencing in the last few nights, which I think is quite common, is falling asleep really easily, but then waking up at 2 or 3 a.m. and all of those things come rushing into my mind and you can ruminate on them. Right. So I spent last night trying to focus on my breath Good. and try to do some meditation. Good. But despite that, I keep tossing and turning. And so I started to think to myself, do I need to get out of bed and go do something else like you hear people say? Or is this where hypnosis could come in handy? Yes. So I say to myself, I'm going to ask David that tomorrow. Um, so here we are. Here we are. <laughs> I've arrived just in time for the consultation, and, and uh, I'm glad to do it. And you're right. Hypnosis can be of help in situations like that, and you don't have to get out of bed to do it. Um, uh, and what I would I ask you to do is get as comfortable as you can. Look up, take a deep breath, let the breath out, let your eyes relax, let your body float. Breath out slowly. Imagine your body floating in a bath a lake, a hot tub, or just floating in space. Each breath deeper and easier. And as you feel your body floating in space, I want you to take a breath in halfway, hold it, now fill your lungs completely, and slowly exhale through your mouth. Again, a breath in, starting with your belly, Diaphragmatic inhale, hold, fill your lungs completely, and slowly exhale through your mouth. And now picture in your mind's eye an imaginary screen. It could be a movie screen, TV screen, computer screen, or a piece of clear blue sky. And picture on it a pleasant scene, somewhere you enjoy being. Now, first of all, with your eyes closed and remaining in the state of concentration, please tell me how your body is feeling right now. At ease. Relaxed. Good. Good. 
So please notice how quickly and easily you can use your store of memories and your imagination and the way you breathe to help yourself and your body feel better. Your body needs to be in this state of relaxation and comfort to let your brain go to sleep. And then if you're having all of these thoughts, like your stresses about what you've got to get done, just project them onto the screen as if you were watching a movie about yourself so that it disconnects it from the physiological arousal that that tends to produce. Because normally you get the snowball effect of mental and physical stress and you notice your body getting tense and you get more tense and then your body gets more tense. It's like a snowball rolling downhill. With self-hypnosis like this, you can reverse that process. Start with your body, get your body comfortable, and then face and deal with whatever it is you're thinking about. And go to sleep. So that's that's the on-ramp? That's the, the way that you just guided us in with those cues. That's correct. Is the on-ramp into this state that is called hypnosis. That's correct. That's okay. right. So there's a lot for us to, I guess, explore and, and unpack right. in terms of you know, what's happening in the brain, how is this different to meditation, right. what types of things could this be useful for, for certain conditions or populations. You're a psychiatrist. That's right. And also a professor and scientist. Right. So you split your time between seeing patients and conducting research? That's correct, I do. And what's that kind of look like over the past decades? Um, well, it's uh, Stanford is a research university and um, I have always wanted to understand more about hypnosis and other mind-body stress management problems. Um, and so when I got there, it, it was kind of an open-minded place where you could study anything as long as you could get raise the grant money to do it and published about it. And uh, Stanford is a wonderful place to collaborate with lots of very smart people. So I devoted a good deal of my time to building a research program, building a laboratory, publishing papers, um, and raising grant money to do that. Um, but I also love treating patients and I learn a lot from it. And I just love the feeling of being able to quickly help people deal with very difficult problems. And I opened a center for integrative medicine at Stanford in 1998. We do hypnosis and mindfulness training and um, uh, functional medicine, food as medicine, kinds of things you've reported on here. Um, and um, so I, I run that clinical program too. So I'd say two thirds of my time is, is research, but another 20% is seeing patients and running clinical programs as well. Has it been difficult to raise funding? You know, I guess sometimes I, there's this thought that it's easier to fund research that can be easily monetized or there's big industries behind, which, correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't really apply to hypnosis. Oh, I wish you hadn't told me that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've noticed. Um, it, it's never easy, um, but the good thing about the research environment is that the sources of funding are primarily National Institutes of Health and, and some foundations that are interested in these kinds of problems. And they know that what you're doing is not going to easily translate itself into big money uh, the way pharma does. So they're actually more inclined to fund research that is more asking basic questions and not directed at just making money. 
Um, so it, is it easy? No. Is it possible? Yes. And I've been, been grateful to be in an environment where I've been able to do it over many decades. Let's start with a clear operating kind of definition of, of hypnosis. Sure. You know, I think a lot of people, when they hear the word hypnosis, what would come to mind straight away is perhaps witchcraft or a scene from a movie or uh, perhaps they were watching a, a magic show or, or a magician. And so they think of that stage hypnosis. How is the hypnosis that you're researching and you're using with patients different to what people may have seen on, t on TV? Yeah, that's one of the banes of my existence, uh, Simon, is that's exactly what people think about. They've seen, you know, these stage shows where, you know, the football coach dances like a ballerina and, you know, everybody laughs. Um, I don't like that. I don't like making fun of people. But I would say to say that that's really what hypnosis is, is like saying that people that were out there selling snake oil are what modern pharmacology is, you know, and, and there is some truth to it. And I would say the image that might help us sort of grasp where, you know, the gold buried in all the dirt is, um, is uh, if a football coach can dance like a ballerina in front of a bunch of people who are going to laugh at him, it indicates a capacity to change, to try being different and see what it feels like. Now, that was not a pleasant thing. It's not a good thing to do, but it does show that hypnosis can get people into a state where they can actually change, where they can be different. And what hypnosis is, is a combination of three things, intensely focused attention, like looking through the telephoto lens of a camera, which you see, you see with great detail, but you're less aware of the context. Um, it's, do you ever get so caught up in a good movie that you forget you're watching a movie and enter the imagined world? more hypnotizable people are more likely to do that. So it's focused attention. Now, the way you do that is you put outside of conscious awareness things that would ordinarily be in consciousness. So right now, your body has sensations in your, your bottom and your back touching these wonderful, elegant chairs that you have here. But hopefully you weren't even aware of that until I mentioned it. If you were, we can just stop now, you know. So, so were you aware of those sensations? No, but as soon no. as you say it, your you awareness are, goes right. there. So you drop into that place. Exactly. And so our brain is all the time in the service of concentrating, deciding what to attend to and what to ignore. So there's all kinds of signals around us that in order to do something in a linear, sensible way, you've got to put outside of awareness other things. In hypnosis, you do more of that. You dissociate things that would ordinarily be in consciousness. And that's why people can dissociate pain, can control pain. It's why soldiers in combat who have been badly wounded may rush to help somebody else and not even notice how badly wounded they are. Uh, it's what we've noticed in people in this tragedy in the Middle East now, where people are badly hurt and they're rushing around trying to help somebody else. So especially at times of stress, um, you can extremely dissociate things that would ordinarily be in consciousness. That's a hypnotic-like state. The third part of it is this suggestibility part. You know, can you make anybody do anything? No, you can't. All hypnosis is really self-hypnosis. And so, but you may at certain times when you're absorbed in dissociating, um, put aside your normal presumption of who you are and what you're like. And we know what's going on in the brain when that happens now. Um, and so you try out being different. And that's a great therapeutic opportunity. So it isn't really suggestibility, it's cognitive flexibility. And that's what people right. do. So that 
allows you to potentially have a perspective shift right on on whatever it is whether it's pain whether it's some type of habit that you're wanting to break or an addiction exactly that's exactly right i i can give you an example um when people you know a lot of the treatments for people who need to stop smoking which everybody needs to do um uh involve dealing with the urge i have the urge to smoke i'm hooked on nicotine and all that and you know what the urge isn't the issue what we say to people is go into a state of self-hypnosis get your body floating safe and comfortable and tell yourself three things one for my body smoking is a poison number two i need my body to live and number three i owe my body respect and protection i ask them to think would you ever put tar and nicotine smoke in the lungs of your baby or your pet cat no. So why would you do it to your own body, which depends on you? So you focus on what you're for. So it enables people to take a different point of view and, and just stop. I had one uh, woman with Reverie, actually, uh, our, our uh, self-hypnosis app, who said, I smoked for 25 years. I didn't even particularly want to stop smoking. I kind of liked it. Um, and uh but i saw you were doing a study so i went and tried it and i didn't like it the first time i tried it but i went home that night i thought through those three points for my body smoking is a poison i need my body to live i owe my body respect and protection i looked at the lit cigarette in my hand and said who needs this i put it out i haven't touched a cigarette since my friends can't believe it and i'm going around helping them and she said you know this is some kind of crazy ass voodoo shit and i mean that in a good way so that was uh, rather spontaneous or that took a number of hypnosis it was it was she she did it it was using self-hypnosis from the app and she did it several times uh, but once she had made that conversion she didn't need to do it anymore there's a lot of overlap with what you just said we were speaking off air about uh dr judson brewer yes and in the episode that I did with him, he was really emphasizing this point of awareness being firstly very critical to breaking a, a habit, some type of destructive habit that you're trying to reduce or get rid of. And most importantly, changing the reward value, which is what you just spoke to. So really getting very honest with what you think about that behavior and how it's affecting you. Yes, uh, and uh, that was a great interview with uh, Judson Brewer. He's a terrific guy, does wonderful research on, on mindfulness. Um, he, he gets you to observe the urge without feeling you have to do anything about it. It's what in mindfulness they call open presence. You just let the thing flow through you. You don't feel you have to act on it, you just observe it. What we're doing is a little different. It's very much related to it, you're right. But we're putting the focus more on what putting tar and nicotine into your lungs does to your body. And so the urge may be there, it may not be, it could even be very strong. So what, would you poison your baby because of an urge like that? No, well, your body's as dependent on you as your baby. So we're a little more focused and focusing slightly on something different. You're right, we're both dealing with the urge, but in slightly different ways. Right, but in, in doing that, what you're speaking to there, the way that I'm kind of comprehending that is you're getting that person to a point where the scale tips such that when they think about that behavior, it's a net negative rather yes. than being a net positive and something that can kind of uh, appease that, that craving that they have. Right. 
Right. I mean, there are very similar. Uh, they're both effective approaches to helping people stop smoking. We get one out of five people to stop and the remainder cut down on the amount of uh, smoking they do. Um, but um, he's focusing on don't be driven by your urges. Now, we do that too, but in a different way. So he's just saying any urge, you know, good, bad, indifferent. It's just an urge. You don't have to act on it. And that's valuable. That's useful. We're saying, however strong the urge is, focus on what carrying out that urge would do to your body. Are you willing to do that to your body? So you're focusing on what you're for, respecting and protecting your body. And where there is this positive reinforcement that you feel that Judson talked about and that, that we're talking about too, um, is the minute you make that decision, you can feel good about yourself. You don't feel I'm depriving myself of something. You feel like, I'm taking a stance that will respect and protect my body. I'm going to be a better parent to my own body. Yes. Yeah, it's it's additive to your yeah. life. Right. You're adding to your Rather life. Rather than, exactly. than I'm I'm missing out exactly. on, on something. Exactly. Taking something away. Right. Coming back to the distinction between stage hypnosis and then clinical hypnosis. So I mentioned to Jose, one of our camera guys here, a wizard. He he <laughs> said to me, I'm terrified of hypnosis. Sorry, Jose. <laughs> I'm not sure if you wanted everyone knowing that. But that seems the to camera's be camera's shaking now. That seems to be a, quite a, a common response. And I think yeah. that is from this idea that hypnosis gets you into a position where you lose control. And yes. you're being controlled by someone else, and that could perhaps put you into a vulnerable position. But what you're saying is that clinical hypnosis, you're still in control. There's just a perspective shift. Yes. All hypnosis is self-hypnosis. Um, I don't do anything to people. I show them how to manage their own hypnotic ability. And so, you know, we're social creatures, Simon, and, and you and I know that people believe a whole lot of things that are just flat out not true. Uh, and that can happen without hypnosis. You know, we are susceptible of social influence. That is true. But in hypnosis, you can intensify your focus on the content. It's like the way when you get lost in a movie, you know, while you're in it, you're not thinking, oh, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Why would he do that? You know, you just you're just flowing along with it. Hypnosis, you're, allow, you're allowing yourself to focus your attention. And what we found doing psychological testing of highly hypnotizable people is they're good at set shifting. They're good at changing their perspective on something, not clinging to an old point of view. And that is a, a basis for change. And so it, it is true that you're probably more willing to try something new and different and it could be a bad thing, but it could also be a good thing. And it's not that you're, you know, turning your brain and your body over to somebody. It's that you're allowing yourself to reflect on being different and see what it feels like. Um, and anytime we take advice from people, we take direction from people, we buy an investment somebody suggests, we're responding to somebody else's influence on us. And we are free to do it or not to do it. In hypnosis, you're more likely to give it a try. And highly hypnotizable people tend to do that more. That's fine. So it's an opportunity for change. It's not turning yourself over to somebody else's control. I had to laugh. I put out a, a kind of question box on Instagram uh, saying, I've got this episode coming up on hypnosis. What would you like to hear us talk about? 
and someone commented, I don't eat red meat, and someone commented, can you be hypnotized to eat red meat? <laughs> and <laughs> and I, thought to myself, to <laughs> I thought to myself, I think that already happened earlier in my life when I was eating like 500 grams of red meat a day. Yes. Well, you know, look, if you're worried about undue influence, think advertising, right? You know, um, and, uh, you know, the, the companies that make hamburgers, you know, spend a whole lot of money making them look good and tasty and trying to lure you into eating them. Um, and, and so there are lots of ways to influence people. And, you know, hypnosis could be one if somebody wanted to do it. But the problem is social influence. It's not hypnosis. So in that state of hypnosis, are you, are you vulnerable at all to ideas or things that people say? Can people put ideas into your mind that end up sticking? Yeah, sometimes. Sure. Um, <laughs> I hope that happens when people listen to your program, right? You know, you're trying to put ideas into their mind and some of them stick. If someone, if I want an audience that really hears what I'm saying and takes my advice, yes, I would like them to be somebody who knowingly goes into a state of self-hypnosis and uh, opens themselves up to feeling different. And that can be a good thing. I had a young woman came to see me who was seven months pregnant. She had very bad lower back disease, terrible pain. The bigger the baby got, the more pain she had. Um, she um, uh, couldn't take medication because she uh, was pregnant. And her pain was seven out of 10. And they had put in nerve stimulators, didn't work. And I said, I want you just to imagine what you actually do to make your body feel better now. She said, I'm floating in a warm bath, you know, bath oils, the steam rising, the warmth penetrating feels good. So I said, good, we're going to do that now. And I had her imagine. And so she did it. And the pain, her pain was seven out of 10 when we started. We got it down to three out of 10. She said, I can live with this. And, but she looked angry. And I said, what are you angry about? And she said, why in the hell are you the last doctor I got sent to instead of the first? And so she could experience it. She was open to experience it, but she could also reflect on what it meant that nobody had helped her to use her mind in that way to control her pain. And so, yes, people are open and, and I'm glad about that. But it's their ability. I'm identifying it with them and teaching them how to use it. Has that been, I guess, tested more formally in a clinical trial, looking at hypnosis and pain reduction yes. compared to, say, other forms of psychotherapy or some type of control? Yes. Um, there are two kinds of studies I can tell you about. One we did, it was a study that we published in The Lancet, which is one of the leading British medical journals, 241 subjects undergoing uh, arterial cutdowns. It's a kind of surgery where you thread a catheter through an artery to chemoembolize tumors in the liver or to visualize uh, stenosis of arteries. It takes about two, two and a half hours. We don't use general anesthesia. They're anxious. They're, it's painful. And we had three conditions. So one, it was randomized. They didn't choose. We chose. One group just had the standard care, which is push a button and you get opioids into your bloodstream. The second was emotional support. So there was a friendly, trained, supportive nurse uh, just trying to comfort you, help you get through it okay. And the third, and they could also push the button, and the third was hypnosis. You're floating, cool, tingling, and numb, filter the hurt out of the pain, or go somewhere else. Imagine you're on a tropical island, you're not here having this done to you. A whole bunch of su hypnotic suggestions to change the experience. 
So what happened at the end of the, an hour and a half was that the average pain rating in the standard care group was five out of 10. In the nursing support group, the average pain was three out of 10. In the hypnosis group, it was one out of 10. And the hypnosis group was using half as much pain medication, pushing the button half as often as the other groups. They had fewer complications. They got done 17 minutes faster than the other groups. So it saved $338 a procedure. And so um, the hypnosis was compared to these, uh, the emotional support helped some, but not nearly as much as hypnosis. And we looked at their anxiety levels during the procedure. And it was six out of 10 in the standard care group, three out of 10 in the nursing group and zero in the hypnosis group. I thought they were all dead or something. They were just fine, no pain, no anxiety at all. So what do you think is happening there? If you think about, I guess, how hypnosis affects the brain, and we can go yeah, into that. We will. How could that lead to a, re a reduction in perceived pain? Well, you know, the, the strain in pain lies mainly in the brain. There are pain signals that come from damaged or injured tissue. They, they travel in a special way through the lateral spinothalamic tract, up through the reticular activating system to the thalamus, and then up to the somatosensory cortex. So there are all these way stations where pain signals come and they are processed, and the brain decides what's going on here. The brain is particularly trained to respond to acute pain because if you've just been bitten by a tiger, you better do something about it. Or if you've just sprained your ankle or broken your arm, you better do something about it. So it pays a lot of attention to it. There's a part of the brain uh, called the dorsal anterior cingulate gyrus. It's part of the salience network that says, oh my God, there's something terrible happening. You better pay attention to it. We're pretty pathetic animals. We're not very big. We're not very fast. We don't hear that well. We don't see that well. We don't smell that well. So we had better react when there's a threat. That's how we've survived to be sitting here today, our species has. Um, but the brain modulates pain. It decides this is a big deal or it isn't. So a big proportion of what you report as pain has to do with how your brain interprets it. Is this some old problem that I know is gonna go away and I'm not worried about it? Or is it a new injury that I have to do something about? So we've shown, as other researchers have shown, um, that the brain changes the way it processes the same signal. So in one early study, um, we took high, high hypnotizable Stanford students, um, we gave them shocks to the wrist, and in one condition, they just felt it. And in another condition, we said, your hand is in circulating ice water, cool, tingling, numb. And within a tenth of a second, the, the first wave of brain response to the pain signals was gone. And the, the wave that usually comes, we call the P300, at a third of a second after was half as big. So same signals, same people, but they're processing it differently. There was an experiment done by a group in Canada in which they did that same kind of setup. Um, and they, uh, in one condition said, your hand is cool, tingling and numb, it's in ice water. And it turned down activity using PET imaging uh, in the somatosensory cortex, the part of the brain uh, that processes all, all sensation, including pain sensation. So you were able to reduce activity in the same region. If you did the same thing, but then said to them, pain's there, but it won't bother you, which is kind of the way people feel when they take opioids. It was the uh, dorsal anterior cingulate, the part of the salience network where activity was turned down. In both cases, the pain reports were lower, but different parts of the brain were involved, depending on what you told them in hypnosis. So 
The brain is a signal processor that tells you, is this worth paying attention to or not? And it can modulate pain substantially. It's one of those examples that you just mentioned there, one of those studies that was more of an acute kind of pain that you yeah, described. But yeah. what about populations, let's say people that have chronic lower back pain or osteoarthritis, right. is there is there any clinical evidence or uh, at least anecdotal evidence from your clinical experience where you've seen hypnosis can lead to pain reduction within that context? Uh, we have it anecdotally, but we have randomized clinical trials. So twice now, we've done studies with women with metastatic breast cancer. About two out of three women with metastatic breast cancer have pain. It makes them very anxious. You know, they feel a pain in their rib and they think, oh my God, the tumor's growing. I'm going to die sooner. It's awful. And we, we would meet with them once a week give them emotional support, help them help one another, face their fears. And we taught them self-hypnosis at the end to control their pain. At the end of a year, in a randomized comparison, the women in the support group had half the pain the control group did on the same and very low amount of medication. Their pain went down, the pain in the other group went up. And it has to do with the brain's either amplification or ability to control the pain because they knew that they could control it. And so if they start to feel a new pain, instead of freaking out and thinking, oh my God, I'm gonna die very soon, they said, I know how to control this. I'm gonna imagine I'm taking a warm bath and filter the hurt out of the pain. So we have evidence from randomized clinical trials that we've published that hypnosis can significantly reduce chronic pain as well. Okay, so pain management, we've spoken a little bit about breaking habits. What, where else is there evidence, be it clinically or in, the, in the, the peer-reviewed literature, that hypnosis could help with certain conditions or certain populations? Well, uh, traumatic stress, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, there's a randomized trial from Israel done before the tragedy that's been happening there now, uh, which just breaks my heart. Um, uh, but showing that if you compared cognitive behavioral training, which is helpful. Uh, you have people um, face distress um, and think it through. It, it's been called exposure therapy or, uh, and it's coupled often with cognitive reprocessing therapy to see the, the problem from a different point of view. Um, and and um, the randomized trial showed um, that the hypnosis was more effective in a group setting uh, than the exposure-based therapy, although both of them help people. I had a, uh, a soldier, a Vietnam veteran actually, who um, was deeply disturbed. He served for like three years in Vietnam um, and it, he was hospitalized psychiatrically because he really lost it when a Vietnamese child who he had informally adopted, um, called him Chi-Town because he came from Chicago, um, he was an orphan. Um, he found him dead in a ditch after a bombing attack on his base. And he was just beside himself that he couldn't even protect this child. It was like the one sort of positive thing he felt he was doing. And um, he hadn't responded to medication. Um, and I, it seemed that there was a sort of break that moment. And he went off in the jungle and started shooting at people. He was really in trouble. And I had him uh, in hypnosis picture finding the boy's body and burying him in burial. And he, he put out his hand in hypnosis and moved his fingers and said, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, I guess. 
And, you know, he's then banged on the table, said, why didn't I take you back to the hooch, man? You wouldn't be there if I had just taken you back to the hooch. A lot of people blame themselves for events they didn't control in traumatic circumstances. Sexual assault survivors, same thing. They think I should have known better than to walk to the drugstore at three in the afternoon. You know, that they, you'd rather feel guilty than helpless. And he felt guilty. So I said, I want you to picture on the other side of the screen where you buried Chi-Town, I want you to picture um, something happy that you shared. And he said, well, it was his birthday party, you know, and I got a cake for him and we lit candles and my sisters sent a model train, you know, that I gave him and he loved that little train, you know. And I said, well, you know, that happiness that you and he shared, he may be gone, but that isn't gone. You know, you made him happy. He made you happy. And just ponder that, too. And he, he said, you know, he came out of it and he said, all I remember is a grave and a cake grave in a cake and he got better so hypnosis can be very useful in identifying a stressor even a traumatic stressor helping people deal with the physiological hyperreactivity that comes but also restructure your understanding of what happened what your role was in the trauma and very often it's helping people who have been traumatized recognize that what trauma is about is just being made into an object a thing and we don't like that. Your agency is removed. And, and rather than blame yourself for something you didn't control, face that there was a period when you were, had no control and be grateful that you survived it and think about what you did to survive it. So that's, uh, those are examples where hypnosis can be very helpful. And as I said, there's just one randomized trial that showed it was superior uh, to some of these other approaches. All right. What about it? IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Have you seen any anything? Yes, um, looking at that area of science. There's a there's a British researcher named Horwell who published a number of wonderful randomized trials showing that hypnosis was very helpful because you know irritable bowel is a miserable thing, but it has to do with bowel activity and uh, and abnormal and ex hyperactivity in the bowel. So you get pain, you get diarrhea. Uh, the bowel seems to get inflamed, um, and uh, it's very disabling. You know, anytime, anywhere, you could have an attack of this and have to go. And he showed that hypnosis could be helpful, not just in reducing pain, which sort of seems sensible, but in actually changing the abnormality of bowel habits. Now, the bowel is a heavily innervated part of the body, and you know, we you know about selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. We use them for antidepressant and their anti-anxiety effects in the brain. There are more serotonin receptors in the gut than there are in the brain. And so sort of the way the gut feels is like the way the brain can make you feel. And uh, he showed that hypnosis can soothe people's gut. And instead of what happens is you start to feel an attack you're out somewhere, you don't know what you're gonna do. You get more anxious, more stressed, and that just makes the attack worse. So you trigger the hyperactivity instead of soothing it. There is uh, There are some compatriots, some Australian guys, terrific guys, uh, Mindset Health, who have a hypnosis app for irritable bowel syndrome called Nerva uh, that helps people. It's a, a program that helps people using the, their app to, to filter the hurt out of the pain. And uh, it seems to improve bowel habits and help with irritable bowel syndrome. Nova, we'll put a link to that into Good. the uh, show notes. Good. 
If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Recently, I've been working with friend of the pod, Dr. Will Bolsowitz on his new brand, 38 Terra, an evidence-based prebiotic supplement to optimize gut health. To facilitate online sales, 38 Terra uses Shopify. The major reason 38 Terra chose Shopify over other e-commerce platforms was because of Shopify's focus on customer conversion. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading e-commerce platforms. If you're going to spend time and money on marketing, you want to make sure you are converting the people who visit your site into loyal customers. What I also love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control in-house. The Shopify app store is home to thousands of customizable apps that can easily plug into your website to help with things like upselling, selling products on social media channels like Instagram and TikTok, and much more. To boost your conversion rate and grow your business, sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com forward slash proof. That's shopify.com forward slash proof, all in lowercase. Where does this fit within psychotherapy and the clinical guidelines. You know, with all of this evidence that you're speaking to, would you say hypnosis is, has it been accepted within the field of science, the field of psychiatry as a viable um, treatment for certain populations, as a, as a viable uh, type of psychotherapy? Yes, I, I helped to write the American Psychiatric Association's declaration that hypnosis is a legitimate uh, type of treatment within psychiatric care, uh, uh, presuming that it is done by a licensed and trained professional who knows how to make a diagnosis, help the patient decide what the problem is, and undertake treatment. So it is a legitimate uh, and recognized form of treatment. It is disgracefully underutilized, and that's very frustrating to me. Um, 
It's the oldest Western conception of a psychotherapy. It's the first time a talking interaction was thought to have therapeutic benefit, 250 years old, and yet it is terribly underutilized. And that, Simon, is why I started Reverie, our digital interactive hypnosis app, because I thought, you know, I've been doing this for 50 years. I've been doing research. I've been treating patients. I've treated about 7,000 people with hypnosis in my career and teaching doctors and psychologists and other people how to use it. And it isn't happening. And I just thought, well, you know, there is one other new technology we can use, and that's apps. That's the, the internet. There are ways um, that we can get this to people directly. So I'm going D to C, direct to consumer, and just saying, if, if I need to do that, I, I've learned a lot in, with these 7,000 people and all this research. I want people to have the benefit of it, even when I can't be around to do it. And I figure this is the way to do it, that this is a way to make it available to people by teaching them how to identify their own hypnotic capacity, which you can do on Reverie, and then use it um, to help yourself get to sleep. Um, so you can listen to my mellifluous voice when you're up in the middle of the night, get yourself back to sleep, control pain, deal with stress, stop smoking, stop vaping, uh, deal with alcohol problems, eat better, eat more mindfully and sensibly. Um, and I just thought, I want to make this work. And so we've now at a point where Reverie has had half a million downloads. Uh, we have about 21,000 people at a time on the app using it. Um, and it's uh, it's been exciting to me to see how well people respond. About three out of four say they reduce their stress, they enhance their focus, they reduce their pain with just one session. That's one of the cool things about it actually is you don't have to wait and see. You don't even have to wait to get your prescription filled and see if the drug helps. You'll know within 12 minutes whether it's going to help you or not. Do you feel less pain? Do you feel less anxious? Are you able to focus better? You'll know right away. And that's the cool thing about it. Why do you think it's been underutilized and not necessarily, I guess, embraced perhaps as, you know, to the the same degree that meditation has been or cognitive behavioral therapy you know, i'm assuming you attend conferences and have over the years what is there is there some type of resistance among psychiatrists towards hypnosis well it's a good question and uh it's frustrated me particularly the meditation thing is very interesting because you know 40 years ago nobody heard of meditation although it's a long-standing tradition in some of the eastern cultures and religions um, and it took off in a way here that hypnosis did not. Uh, I think um, people are afraid of it. I think they do associate it, as you mentioned, with uh, stage shows and things like that. Um, they're afraid they'll lose control when really they're gaining control. Um, and that's what I'm sitting here trying to get across, that hypnosis is a way of enhancing your control, not losing it. Uh, and it's a, a wonderful tool if you give it a try and see if it will help you. So uh, I think, you know, um, <laughs> my late father, who was a psychiatrist, used to call psychiatry the study of the diseases of theories. And, um, you know, we've had one kind of therapy after another. Freud gave up hypnosis. He started using hypnosis. Uh, but uh, he wrote in his autobiography that a patient, he said, I was relieving her of her attacks of pain by tracing them back to some traumatic origin earlier in her life when she threw her arms around my neck. And he said, I was modest enough not to attribute this to my own irresistible personal attractiveness. And I discovered the mysterious element that was transference, that patients transfer to their therapist feelings that they have about parents and other people earlier in their lives. 
Um, so psychoanalysis went a different way. Freud stopped using it, why should they? And then there are other schools of, of psychotherapy that don't involve hypnosis, like cognitive behavioral therapy, which is very valuable and very useful, but very different. And so um, there have been many different approaches, and we need many different ones to help people with the diversity of problems they have. But you're absolutely right. It's underutilized. I think people are afraid of it. And, you know, I was a little worried, to tell you the truth, Simon, when we started putting this out as an app, I thought, oh, my God, you know, maybe something strange will happen. And when I was in my training, I wouldn't have dared to do it. You know, my God, who knows? Somebody might wind up in a trance and stay in it. Well, 500,000 downloads. I've had maybe four or five minor problems. You know, somebody said her headaches got worse instead of better or something like that. We've just had no trouble with it. And that proves that hypnosis is self-hypnosis, that people are really using a capacity that they have. So um, <laughs> your observation is correct. I don't know why, but I'm doing everything I can to change it. Our students today that go through psychiatry, are they exposed to hypnosis? Is it something that they're actually learning in class they're being taught so that when they graduate they feel confident in using it as a treatment modality um not enough the best medical schools teach it we're starting a new class at stanford 15 bright young uh, psychiatrists have signed up to take the class uh, it's not a required course though it's an elective and that's the case in most in most schools um, and so yeah there's some of it it's recognized it's taught um, but it's still kind of a sideshow, not the main event. If if you're doing hypnosis underneath someone who is not a psychiatrist, not properly trained in hypnosis, in hip hypnosis, is the risk just that you might not get into a hypnotic state, or is there risk that you could get into that state and then have an adverse effect? Um, I'd say most of the time that's it, but whether or not you get into a hypnotic state is a different issue because um, people differ in their degree of hypnotizability. There are some people who no matter what you do, I could talk to them all day long and they would not go into a hypnotic state. There are others where it doesn't matter a hell of a lot what you say, they will flow along with you. People who are highly hypnotizable are easily absorbed in things like movies or novels. Um, people who are moderately hypnotizable can have those experiences, but then kind of step back and wonder about them and judge them and then try it again. And there are some who just, we call them the researchers. They just don't. They just think about things and don't let go enough. Very rational. Very rational. Analytical. Right. What percentage of people would you say are easily hypnotizable, moderately hypnotizable, and uh, poorly hypnotizable? The highs in adulthood are like, 15 to 20%, about 50% um, are at least somewhat hypnotizable. And so there's about a third at the low end, 20 to 30% who are just flat out not hypnotizable. And it's interesting, Simon, that uh, children as a group are extremely hypnotizable. All, you, all eight-year-olds are in trances all the time. You know, you call them in for dinner, they don't hear you. Um, there's something about the Engage, engagement that children have with everything they do. Work and play are all the same thing. It's really too bad we try to make them into little adults because they learn so beautifully as kids. And as we go through adolescence and we learn more formal thinking to value reason more than just direct experience, many people lose some of that hypnotizability. 
it becomes a very stable trait when you're about 21 and it's as stable as IQ after that. So uh, people differ. So some people just aren't that hypnotizable. Although if you use the right approach, as we do with Reverie, we, um, people can benefit from the way you approach things, focusing on what you're for rather than what you're against, even if you're not that hypnotizable. What's that quick test that I've heard you speak about before where you can quickly kind of determine if someone's going to be hypnotizable? Well, it's, a, it's called the eye roll sign. And it's, it's something my late father observed. Uh, he had one patient who I saw actually who had hysterical seizures. She, would, she didn't actually have a seizure disorder in her brain, but she would start acting like she did and she would shake. And her eyes would roll way up in the back of her head. She closed her eyes and had one of these events. And the next Monday, he saw a guy who was just an obsessional, controlling, not even a little bit hypnotizable. And my father was having him look up at the ceiling and close his eyes, look at a light in the ceiling. And he noticed his eyes came down as he closed his eyelids. And so he started seeing whether people, uh, what he would have them look up, close their eyes, and some people could keep their eyes way up. All you'd see is the whites of their eyes. Like that, try look up, close, close. Oh yeah, you're three out of four. You're very, you would, the initial guess would be you'd be very hypnotizable. If you think about it, eye movements are associated with level of consciousness. When we go to sleep, we close our eyes. Um, we, uh, drugs that affect uh, the, the state of arousal affect eye movements. So you get nystagmus shaking of the eyes uh, when you take certain sedating drugs. Um, and so, Eye movements are very much linked to arousal. And so it makes sense that differences in the way you can control your eyes, and it's hard to keep your eyes up while you're closing, might be related to hypnotizability. So it's not a definitive test, but it's a good initial indication of how hypnotizable you're likely to be. Yeah, that's interesting because I'm probably on the more analytical, logical uh, <laughs> side of the, the spectrum, but at least that gives me a little bit of hope. Maybe I'll get some sleep. Yeah, I think you will. If I, I use Reverie tonight, I'll report yeah, back do that. on that. But stay awake while you're interviewing me, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm still trying to get my head around how this is distinct from meditation. So, you know, I meditate most days. Usually, usually I focus on a mantra. So I'm repeating that mantra over in my mind. And if my attention kind of drifts away, then I just try and pull it back to to the mantra so I'm, I'm narrowing my focus sometimes i'll do it with breath and, and i know a lot of people just focus on the breath which is a kind of another way of narrowing the focus and entering that kind of state of meditation how is that different to what you described at the start of this conversation where you're cueing people through lying in the in in the bathtub floating in water and then the screen that you you spoke about that seems to also be i guess narrowing the focus a little bit what's what's different about this experience that someone would feel and what's different that we understand with regards to what's happening in the brain in the brain i'll be glad to answer that so um the the First, I'll, I'll start with maybe a story about a woman who was an experienced meditator, you know, twice a day for 10 years. And she had migraine headaches. And she said, I love meditation. It's great. But I still have these damn migraines and I hate them, you know, and they just immobilize me. I can't stand them. 
And um, so I had her do hypnosis and focus on the problem. So one thing with meditation is it's a way of being, and you're just meant to be, to have open presence, to let thoughts and feelings flow through you, non-judgmental, you don't fight against them, you don't struggle with them, you just let them happen. But you're not doing it initially to solve a problem, you're just doing it to be different and to calm your mind um, and, and to develop a sense of compassion, do a body scan, but not, not do anything. It's Eastern, you know, and, and I said, I'm going to imagine you've got a skull cap on that's full of ice and you're going to feel a sense of cool, tingling numbness to filter the hurt out of the pain. And she came back and she said, you know, doc, my migraines are gone now. And I want to thank you for freeing my intentionality. Because one of the things about meditation is you're not supposed to, intention is the problem. You've got to get over yourself in, in meditation. and Get and out of the way. Get out of the way and right. just let whatever is going to happen, happen. Whereas in hypnosis, you're in hypnosis, you're purposefully engaging with the trauma or the pain or the habit. That's exactly right. So you're focusing on it. You're trying to do something about it to solve it. Uh, and so it's Western. You know, you do it for a purpose. I don't, I think it's nice when people enjoy feeling, you know, using hypnosis to just focus or feel better. But, but my goal is not to have a bunch of people walking around hypnotized. Um, it's to help them use it to solve a problem. And so it's got intentionality, it's got purpose. And you, you try to do things with your perception. You're, you're not just open to it, you try to change it. And you can remember, so afterwards you come out of this state, you can recall that experience, which then I, I presume is what allows for integration? Usually, usually you can, that's right. But sometimes people can kind of come to some integration in the hypnotic state, feel more resolved about it, and not necessarily have to rethink it after they've done it. They just, I feel different. I have had people say, I feel lighter. You know, I've been carrying this burden around and they don't, they're not always clear why they feel lighter, but they feel different about what it was that had them so upset and they feel better. So it, it's more purposeful. Now, from the point of view, you asked about what's going on in the brain, there are real differences. So in, in hypnosis, we found that three things happen. You turn down activity in the anterior cingulate cortex, the dorsal part of it. This is a, the, the cingulate is like a C resting on its ends in the middle of your brain. And the front part is part of that salience network that the alarm goes off when you hear a loud noise. You hear, you hear a gunshot and you think, oh my God, what is that? You know. Um, whereas if you turn down activity in that region, uh, you can allow yourself to focus. And we've done studies that show that that part of the brain in highly hypnotizable people has more uh, GABA activity. GABA, gamma aminobutyric acid is an inhibitory neurotransmitter um, that is stimulated by anti-anxiety drugs and by sedative hypnotic drugs, the benzodiazepine class. And so you've got your own little pharmacy there, particularly if you're very hypnotizable, that can shut down your anxiety and, and help you control pain as well. So that's one thing that happens in hypnosis. You want to ask your question? I can yeah. yeah. I, I want to I help the listener understand what it feels like to be in that state. So let's say, for example, I, I mentioned there that I've had a few poor nights sleep and I want to use this. Is it is it just the outcome that I'm looking at to 
determine if I'm hypnotizable and this is effective. So I'm looking at, does it help me get back to sleep? Or when I'm going through and listening to you speak to me, are there certain things that indicate that I am in a, I'm in a hypnosis state? Yeah, we, uh, one thing if we ask people to do is to, to rate at the beginning, how stressed are you on a zero to 10 scale right now? And then to consider in a few minutes how stressed you are um, after you've been doing the exercise. Does your body feel more comfortable and relaxed? Because part of the way hypnosis works with stress and focus is you st we do it from the body up rather than the, the head down. We sort of say, get your body floating and comfortable. Does it feel different? Does you, do you feel lighter? Do you feel like you're floating? Is the is your painful area warmer or cooler? Can you filter the hurt out of the pain? So you experience, you take stock of how your body is feeling, how you're feeling, and decide whether it's helping them. Whereas in, in meditation, you're, you, you shouldn't be taking stock. That evaluation is considered a kind of breach with the idea of just open presence. And, and I think that's a very interesting idea too. It can be helpful, but it is different. And, and what happens in the brain is that in meditators, and Judd Brewer has done some beautiful research and this shows that as people become experienced meditators, they turn down activity in the other, the back part of the anterior cingulate cortex. We call that the default mode network. Uh, Judd talked about this, that it's the part of your brain that is active when you're not doing too much of anything else. You're evaluating yourself, evaluating what you can do, what people think of you. And that is getting over yourself in meditation. Activity goes down. In hypnosis, the more you're doing hypnotic work, the more you're turning down activity in that region. So that's where we see very rapidly cognitive flexibility, where you're just, you're, that voice that says, I shouldn't be doing this, people won't like this, you know, my mother wouldn't approve, whatever it is, um, gets shut down to the extent that you're engaged in the hypnotic activity. So that part of the reaction is, is similar, but it's more of a, trait change in meditators whereas it's a state change in hypnosis while you're doing it that happens and the third thing in hypnosis um, is that you have more connectivity between your executive control region and the frontal cortex and the insula which is a mind-body relay so you can very effectively control things in your body that you wouldn't think you can control um, we did one experiment where we took people, got them in the lab first thing in the morning, highly hypnotizable, and had them eat imaginary meals. And then we measured their gastric acid. You asked about irritable bowel syndrome. And we got an 89% decrease in gastric acid secretion when they thought about anything except food and drink. Um, and then um, we, uh, we had them concentrate on something else and it didn't have any effect on the gastric acid secretion. And then we gave them pentagastrin, which stimulates gastric acid secretion, and we still had a 19% reduction in hypnosis. So the, the brain and the body interact very tightly uh, through hypnosis. Do you have any data from your app that speaks to how effective this could be for someone that does have insomnia, who's waking up and ruminating as I explained, uh, if someone gives this a go, how, how likely is it that it's going to help them fall back to sleep? Well, we're still, we're analyzing our data right now. We haven't published it yet, uh, but the impression we're getting in terms of stress management and pain reduction is that about three quarters of the people feel an improvement. 
within 12 minutes when they when they try to do it. We wanted to get the same. So what we do is we have the app ask them, what's your level of pain now? We do the exercise and then we say, what is it now? And we look at the difference. That's pretty easy. We tried to do that with the, the insomnia app. We got very, and you know, we've had thousands of responses on these other ones. We've got very few on, on the insomnia part, part, which is one of the most popular uh, uh, programs in the app. And we realized we asked them, why didn't you tell us? They said, I just fell asleep, <laughs> you know. So we didn't we didn't get the follow-up feedback because a lot of them went to sleep and didn't give us the follow-up. So we're gonna try and find other ways. But my impression is that people are find it surprisingly helpful and they wake up the next morning and they feel better. Mm -hmm. How long does it take to get into the state of hypnosis? If you're hypnotizable, it it, it can take a minute. It's very rapid. It does. It you know. It used to be thought that you have to climb upstairs and downstairs and have these long sleep-like inductions. Hypnosis is not sleep; it's focused attention. So you can do it in less than a minute if you're hypnotizable. So you're offering hypnosis, guided hypnosis, through the app. How does that compare with going and seeing someone in person? And I guess where I'm getting at with this is how how much do you need to tailor the cues to that individual their situation in order to be effective with this well it's a very important point um but here's what we do we we sort of in this case we're teaching a health and wellness skill we're not diagnosing and treating people so we're counting on people to define for themselves what their problem is um, and then we design the app to be interactive so it's different from just listening to a generic recording um, I will stop periodically. We programmed it so that I say, I'll tell you your hand will feel light and buoyant and float up in the air like a balloon. Um, and if, you know, you pull it down, it'll float right back up. Um, so I ask in the app, is your hand floating in the air? And if it is, I go on to something else. If it isn't, I do what I would do in the office. I'd say, well, let's work on this now. I want you to f imagine there's a balloon tied to your hand. And so at many steps along the way, I stop, ask a question, and we process the answer and give them a different instruction. So we made it as much as possible like the experience with me in the office. I used to worry about that, and then I thought with insomnia, you know, if you wake up at three in the morning, you probably don't want me in your bedroom telling you how to get back to sleep. So in some ways, it's better. If you want to look at outcome, face-to-face -face hypnosis, single session to help people stop smoking, we get... 50% stop right away, 23% long-term abstinence. We get 19% abstinence with the app. So it's not quite as good, but you know what? It's it's pretty close. And it's going to be more accessible to a much number of people. More, much more accessible, yes, and less expensive. <laughs> what is the, the frequency in which someone needs to, I guess, engage with this practice to see benefits? Is it like meditation where you're doing this daily? Are you doing it for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes? What does that look like? I ask people to, when they're first learning it, to, to you know, it's like learning to ride a bicycle. You gotta do it for a while till you feel comfortable doing it. So I, I want them to practice three or four times a day. Anytime you're feeling pain or you have an urge to smoke, don't fight it, admit it, sit down or lie down, go into the state of self-hypnosis. I ask them to do it daily for at least a couple of weeks to get a feeling and, and use it anytime you need it. So if you feel like you're going to, you know, take a smoke or if you're going to eat food that's bad for your body, um, do the exercise. So I would say at first, 
uh, at least three or four times a day. Use it daily for at least a week and then see how you feel and what you need it for. Coming back to insomnia, I'm being selfish here. I'm using this as a consultation. (laughs) Fine. (laughs) I really want to get a good night's sleep. I hope you do. (laughs) Uh, What what am I engaging in? Am I focusing on relaxation and and feeling light and, and all those things or am I engaging with the fact that I'm restless? Um, you know, the, the part of the problem is um, when you're wanting to get to sleep and you can't, what you wind up doing is things that wake yourself up even more. You get frustrated. You get angry. Your muscles get tense. You start to squirm around. You start thinking about, I mean, we all know how much sleep affects your productivity the next day. That's exactly how right. how, how good are you going to be exercising? How good are you going to be in your workplace? How good are you going to be communicating with your partner? And then you think about the long-term effects of sleep deprivation and that's what i do and then all of a sudden as you say you just yeah. you've created this feedback loop where you're just getting more frustrated more frustrated right. further right. away from drifting back to sleep yeah very well described so obviously you've got experience with this but what you want to do is interrupt that cycle of psychological and physiological arousal that makes it harder to sleep because you're triggering the sympathetic nervous system. You're increasing heart rate, increasing blood pressure, increasing muscle tension. You start to sweat. And then you notice that and you think, oh God, just what you're saying, you know, tomorrow's gonna be a disaster and I'll never get things done. And so we say, um, you, what you want to do is trigger parasympathetic activity. That's the opposite of sympathetic, where you slow your heart rate, lower your blood pressure. That's what you need to be dominant when you're going to sleep. So I say, start out working with your body. So just take your body somewhere where you feel safe and comfortable and picture yourself in a hot tub or in a bath or in a lake or lying on a beach in the sun. Just get your body comfortable. And then if you're going to be stewing about this stuff, do it outside your body. Picture whatever you're worried about, what you have to get done out there on the screen and just on the one side, picture a challenge that you need to deal with. And on the other side, picture how you're going to deal with it. So you're not only dealing with what's got to come, but you're beginning to build a plan for how you can deal with it. And that helps to lower your mental tension because you begin to see a way out. You know, it's not like, oh, I've got these 12 things I have to do, but here's one, here's how I'm going to knock that one off, and here's how I'm going to do the next. So you can have this kind of positive reinforcement. I think I can see my way through this. But you, keep, you start out by getting your body comfortable. Right. And that might sound counterintuitive to some mm-hmm. because what you're putting forward there is it is engaging with those thoughts and ideas. And I guess the kind of more common narrative out there is to you know, try and take your awareness away from those things <laughs> in order to fall back to sleep. But, but it seems like what you're, the point you're making is engaging with them but separating yourself. From them separating your body from it and engage from with them in a way that leaves you feeling better not worse you know one thing one of the standard lines that people who use hypnosis is the worst thing you can do is tell someone not to think about purple elephants right you know what are you thinking about so instead you focus on what you're for on your reservoir of ability to resolve problems to solve problems to deal with it And so it's not simply, oh, I've got this horrible list facing me tomorrow. It's, I feel a little better about my ability 
to deal with it. And you don't have to go through it in detail, but you just think, well, here's the one I'll knock off first. And here's, here's something I can, you know, check with somebody who knows more about this than I do and get advice about it or something. But you begin to see it not just as this looming set of problems that's going to overwhelm you, but something you know you can deal with. And so it's a way of restructuring what it is you're worrying about, restructure the worry into it being a challenge uh, of how to adapt and deal with what you have to deal with. I tell people who are worried about athletic performance to picture in hypnosis that your opponent is your coach, that he's telling you what you've got to do to beat him, basically, in the way that he's challenging you. And so it's it's a problem, but it's a natural problem if you're engaged in contact sports or other things like that or competitive sports. But you're it, it's an occasion for you to learn. So you're seeing the same problem from a new point of view that can lead you feeling leave you feeling better, not worse. Right. Which there is certainly some parallels with. I had a, an entire episode on MDMA with a professor out of Melbourne, uh, Suzanne Rossell. And that seemed to be, and the main the main thing that we spoke about there in terms of the mechanism by which MDMA may be effective in certain cases for PTSD is through creating a perspective shift. Yes. Well, and I think it does. And in particular, and, and some of the results with PTSD have been quite impressive actually with MDMA. You know, it, it's it's a sort of social connection drug. It makes you feel empathic, more empathic and connected with people than you usually do. And if you think about people who have gone through serious trauma, they feel shamed. They feel ashamed. You know, even if they did nothing wrong, even if they fought valiantly, if you were bested and controlled and beaten or hurt or something, it, it, it carries with it a deep sense of personal shame that you don't deserve, but you're left with after a situation like that. And so when you feel ashamed, you also feel like, who the hell would want to be with me? And so many of them withdraw from social connection. And the, the more you avoid people, the less you do the things that normally engage you with people, and it, it perpetuates itself. And so one reason I think MDMA is so helpful is it allows you to get beyond that a bit and just feel more connected with people, even though otherwise you might not. And so, yes, I think the, the, you know, the psychedelic work now is very interesting. You know, I've reviewed work on psilocybin and I've worked with dying cancer patients for years and, you know, they, they see the same thing that scared the hell out of them differently. You know, they see, that, yes, if I, if, if the cancer gets me, it will get me, I'll die and that'll be it. But they say, I, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, would I want to take a drug like that when I'm, you know, close to death? You want to have a bad trip then? I don't think so. But the, what they say is, I could see what a miracle it is that I'm alive, you know, and what a miracle it is that I've had all these experiences. That's remarkable. And you know, so they say it's sort of like looking into the Grand Canyon when you're afraid of heights. You know, if you fell down, it'd be a disaster, but you feel better about yourself because you're able to look. I don't feel serene, but I can look at it. So I think, and, and many of these psychedelics disrupt or suppress activity in the default mode network. They turn it down. They, they, they have serotonin-like effects uh, there, and and I think that's part of how they work. Yeah, that that point that you made there about feeling isolated and withdrawing and then through the use of mdma being able to better connect with people i think that's underscored 
there's you know by a lot of research on relationships and how well the, the quality of our relationships with the people around us is the greatest predictor of our happiness and our lifespan yes that's absolutely right that uh, there have been a number of studies that show that social connectedness is as good for your overall survival as not smoking for example that uh, isolated people die palpably sooner like you know months to years sooner than people who are well connected socially there was a study published in the journal of clinical oncology pretty tough place to publish by a group out of Dana-Farber Cancer Center. They studied like 704,000 Americans who died of cancer. And they looked at the relationship between marital status and survival. Overall, all 10 types of cancer, married cancer patients lived on average four months longer than unmarried cancer patients. And they, they noted in the abstract that that's about as long as the average addition to survival for chemotherapy. So you're absolutely right. Social connection is a powerful factor in our overall health. And we need to look after each other. Yep. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. So as a psychiatrist, you have a toolbox, lots of different interventions you can kind of pull on. How does hypnosis kind of intersect with pharmacotherapy and other forms of, of psychotherapy? Well, uh, you know, I'm a psychiatrist. I do, I do that. Um, it, uh, you want to use it uh, I, I often use, I use it as a first resort because if it works, we'll know very quickly. If it doesn't, then we may go on to other things. I may add antidepressants in particular if people are also depressed, although hypnosis can help with some kinds of depression. But for me, in the kind of practice I have, I tend it's a first resort, not a, not a last resort. I get a lot of patients from other psychiatrists for whom it's a last resort, not a first. Um, but, um, and there are other kinds of psychotherapy. I do supportive psychotherapy for people who, you know, have issues that make them depressed or, um, uh, I've done other kinds of psychotherapy for, for post-traumatic stress disorder. But I would say in general among psychiatrists, it's not that widely used. And so they'll, they'll refer to people like me rather than do it themselves. Although some more and more are using it now in their practice, particularly when there's an identifiable problem, symptom-related problem, 
where they think they it could make a difference or where it could help people kind of come to terms with some longer standing issues that um that are troubling them you mentioned your father a few times mm -hmm. is that where this journey of yours with hypnosis begins well yes i mean he uh he learned hypnosis uh from a viennese refugee who uh had studied hypnosis uh in vienna was driven out by the nazis and but couldn't serve in the u.s military so he taught young army doctors how to use hypnosis and my father used it in combat for controlling pain for dealing with combat stress reactions um you know he had a soldier who was who became paralyzed he couldn't walk and it turned out in hypnosis he said that um uh his he saw his friend get shot and he they were ordered to you know to retreat and he had to choose between helping his friend and following orders and going out he left and he felt terribly guilty he said my legs should not have carried me away from my friend you know that kind of thing and again there's one of these things where people would rather feel guilty than helpless he didn't choose to be in a, in a, in a, in a war you know he was in it and things like that happened and uh, my father said in hypnosis i want you to look at how your friend is lying look at him and you notice that his feet are pointing down so he's not lying on his back resting he's dead and the guy said oh yeah yeah he probably was dead he was very badly wounded and he started walking and so he used it for that you know so the dinner table conversations were pretty interesting um when i got to medical school i thought well the least i ought to do is take a hypnosis course you know so i did and my first patient um was i was at children's hospital in boston um and the nurse says spiegel your patient has status asthmaticus and she's in room 734 or something and i followed the sound of the wheezing down the hall and in there is a pretty redhead 15 year old girl bolt upright in bed knuckles white struggling for breath her mother's standing there crying the nurse is in the room and i didn't know what else to do they tried epinephrine twice under her skin didn't work they were considering general anesthesia she'd been hospitalized every month for three months um they were going to put her on steroids and i said would you like to learn a breathing exercise she nods so i get her hypnotized and then i start to sweat because i realized we hadn't gotten asthma in the course yet i'm a third year medical student you know what do i know so i said something very clever and subtle i said each breath you take will be a little deeper and a little easier and within five minutes she's lying back in her bed she's not wheezing anymore her mother stopped crying the nurse ran out of the room my intern comes looking for me and i figure he's going to pat me on the back and say what in the hell did you do he said the nurse has filed a complaint with the nursing supervisor that you violated massachusetts law by hypnotizing a minor without parental consent now massachusetts has a lot of weird laws but that's not on the list and uh in any event her mother was standing right there next to me when i did it um and he said well you'll have to stop doing it and i said why he said it's dangerous and this is the thing you see with hypnosis uh, simon that either they think it's ridiculous and a stage show trick or it's really dangerous you know and i said well you're going to give her general anesthesia and you think my talking to her is dangerous i don't think so take me off the case if you want but i'm not going to tell my patient something i know is not true so he stomps out of the room and he goes and has a council of war with the chief resident and the attending physician and all that and they came back on monday and they said they had a radical idea they said let's ask the patient i don't think they'd ever done that before and she said oh i like this so she um 
had one subsequent hospitalization and went on to study to be a respiratory therapist. And I figured that anything that could help a patient that fast, that safely, uh, violate a non-existent Massachusetts law had to be worth looking into. And that was the first of my 7,000 patients because I just saw it right there in front of me. And so it, you know, it's sort of tapping into the ability people naturally have to make themselves better. But sometimes they don't do that. They make themselves worse. So teach them how to make things better rather than worse. And that's what I've been doing ever since. In that journey where you've now treated 7,000 patients, have you noticed a change, I guess, in the perception of hypnosis within the within the medical community? You know, that reaction that you refer to there is due to, I guess, the stigma that's associated with, with hypnosis. As more and more research has come out, are you seeing that type of reaction, that stigma wane? Well, Simon, I'd say we're getting more what I would call grudging respect. I mean, you know, I'm, I got a job at Stanford. I do research on hypnosis. I was asked to start a Center for Integrative Medicine. We're using it now. Um, um, I've published a whole lot of papers uh, and other colleagues have too. There are professional hypnosis societies. Uh, so in that sense, it's better, yes, but it's not nearly where it needs to be. And that's why we need reverie and, and apps like it, uh, like Nerva, like One Leaf in France to help people learn to do it for themselves. I just, I'm taking a different path at this point. For lack of a better word, do you see hypnosis like competing with meditation or are they two very different modalities for very different conditions and people? Uh, I, I think, <laughs> I think there's some of both. Uh, you know, I think the fact that meditation has taken off the way it has is wonderful. Uh, I admire people like Judd Brewer and John Kabat-Zinn and others who have, have made it a thing that many people do. But I do think it's more a practice, a way of being than uh, something that people use to help manage problems. Um, they, there's more and more of that now. You know, John Kabat-Zinn has a new book on meditation and pain now. They're, uh, I think they're moving in that direction, actually. Um, but I do think they both um, help us uh, see what a powerful tool the brain, brain is. We, you might call it sort of uh, the, the brain is our own little pharmacy. You know, you don't always need exogenous drugs. You can use the endogenous ones that are in your brain to help yourself deal with problems. And so I do think that the move for integrative medicine, although hypnosis is just one part of it, um, is a move for people to take charge of their own health care and the kind of thing you're doing and people managing their diets and living differently and exercising differently. We're seeing ourselves not as just, you know, a broken machine that we have to go to the mechanic to get fixed, we see it as something that we control and the way we live with it and use it and take care of it will have a great effect on our health. So I, I'd like to see hypnosis as part of that movement of, of self-management and self-control. Hmm. We need all the tools that that we can lean on. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> right. you bet. We do. Uh, it probably sounds like we're on the tarmac. I just realized. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so with that, before we do land this plane, was there anything that we didn't cover or perhaps we covered that you wanted to build on or any myths that we didn't clear up? Sure. Well, you know, I would say, uh, Simon, that lest anybody think still after this enlightening conversation we've had 
that hypnosis is either silly or dangerous. Um, think about you know our own sort of psychological pharmacy, the f the power we have to make ourselves feel better as well as worse, um, and how quickly one can learn to do it. And that's why we built Reverie to give people an app they can use. Give it a try. See what it feels like. Just try it. You know, see see what happens. Compare that with what Big Pharma did, what Purdue Pharma did, um, getting people addicted to opioids. Um, 82,000 Americans died of opioid overdoses last year. The CDC is expecting 111,000 to die uh, in next year from, from opioids. Um, we've gotten people addicted. Uh, opioids are a reasonably good drug for acute pain. They're a terrible problem for chronic pain. And they suppress respiration. You remember Prince, you know, the fabulous musician, guitarist. Uh, he just went to sleep and didn't wake up. He wasn't trying to kill himself, but he had chronic pain and he was on opioids. Um, there are so many things we do uh, in what we consider mainstream medicine that are far more dangerous than things like hypnosis or meditation or other forms of self-management. The same has been said about nutrition counseling, that somehow you're telling people to take things that might do them harm or deprive their body of things that they, it needs. And, and that's so much less dangerous than so many of the other things that we do. And um, you're seeing it now with, you know, these, uh, these new weight control drugs that are people are losing weight. You know, they've been adapted from diabetes treatment. Uh, people are losing weight, but they're losing muscle as well as fat. And there are going to be all kinds of other problems that come from that. Now, I'm a doctor. I use medications. I'm not against meds but we overuse them. And in particular, the opioid thing was a disaster because we were taught, I was taught in medical school that people don't get addicted to opioids if they're using them to control pain. And that was partly the push of the big pharma industry to convince doctors of that, to make using drugs, you know, like opioid-like drugs um, acceptable to middle-class and upper-middle-class people uh, when they was thought of as just heroin addicts on the street who use those drugs. And um, that has killed hundreds of thousands of people. Have you seen the the documentary Painkillers on no, Netflix? I've heard about it. I haven't seen it, but yeah. it's, I've heard that it's shocking. It is. I mean, from my understanding, it seems to be considered a pretty accurate reflection yes. of, of the story of, the, of Purdue and the Sackler family. Yep, yep. It's, it's horrifying. So, you know... When, when I sit there and I look at this, and they, they, I mean, and it was a deliberate strategy that they used to try and make basically getting people addicted to opioids an acceptable thing to do. And they would actually, there are laws passed in states that if doctors don't ask about patients' pain, they're committing malpractice, there could even be criminal penalties. And yeah, we should ask about pain, but that was pushed by pharma to get people to, to get doctors to prescribe more opioids for pain control. And shockingly with the narrative, it seems that this particular opioid was not addictive. Yes. And I, I mean, I'm, I can picture myself in my pharmacology class at Harvard Medical School being told that, you know, that, that, um, that uh, it, it, it's street junkies that get addicted to these drugs. But if you're using, and you know what? Not only is it not true, the opposite is true. Because you get hyper withdrawal hyperalgesia. People get hooked when they have pain because the pain is even worse as they're coming off the opioids than it was originally. So you're getting them in this box where they are stuck. 
if you don't help them deal with the pain in some other way. So, you know, when, when people say hypnosis is dangerous, I'm saying, are you kidding me? Hypnosis has never killed anybody. And opioid overdoses have killed hundreds of thousands of people. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, medical problems are problems of life and death and living and living better and living worse. Um, and the, the sort of imposition of profit motive, I mean, you know, there are some, you know, drug companies do wonderful things, you know, the, the way Moderna came up in short order with an effective vaccine for COVID was truly remarkable and a monument to good science. There are times when big pharma does big, wonderful things, but there are times when they don't. And when we overvalue these business-related um, uh, interventions and undervalue the ones that don't make a hell of a lot of money because you're just teaching people how to do stuff. Yeah, I appreciate your nuanced position there. It's a little <laughs> different to either farmers out to kill us or yeah. farmers the best thing yeah. uh, no, it's, in the it's world. Some of both, you know, yeah. like a lot of David. This problems. has been super interesting. Thank I'll certainly be downloading Reverie Great. this evening giving it a go Terrific. and if it works i will be forever a believer <laughs> and shouting <laughs> about the app from Please from do. the rooftops so Great. uh thank you for joining us You're thank you welcome. for your contribution to science flying down from san francisco today much much appreciated yeah. uh links to reverie and everything else mm -hmm. that we discussed will be in the show notes thank you and thank you simon for teaching people how to make their lives better how to eat and think and live better and that's a real contribution and that is what we need to balance off these other forces that are trying to hijack health and um there's a lot people can do for themselves so thanks for doing that thank you there you have it friends i hope you enjoyed this episode if you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes be sure to hit that subscribe button on youtube and follow on apple or spotify finally thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.